Hello and welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're talking about one of the most important subjects of all, school education. In particular, we're looking at the quality of the teaching in Australia's schools, why it's not as good as it could be, and what we should do to improve it. To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined by Grattan's education gurus. Firstly, our Education Program Director, Pete Goss. Hello, Pete. Good to be with you. And Peter and I are also joined by Grattan's Education Fellow, Julie Sonneman. Julie, welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. Pete and Julie have just published a report which charts a bold new career path for expert teachers to transform school education in Australia. We'll come to that new career path soon, but first, Julie... What's the state of play with teaching in Australia? Is it good enough? Are we getting the results we want? We know that we need to improve teaching in Australia. We can do a lot better than we do today. For a wealthy country, we should, we should be much more ahead of the pack in our international test scores than we are. Um, one of the biggest policy levers for governments to improve teaching is teacher professional learning. Um, that, that helps us do more with our current teachers that we already have in the workforce there are other ways that you can improve teaching by attracting high achievers to teaching and improving the training that teachers initially receive. But those types of reforms typically take about 40 years or so to flow through to the full workforce, whereas teacher professional learning enables you to actually improve the 300,000 teachers that we already have working in our schools today. You mentioned, Julie, the um, international tests of students. They don't tell a good story, do they, for Australian students in recent times? They don't. So there's been a, a long-term decline in Australian uh, test results of students at the age 15 on um, in, in maths, science and reading, particularly in maths. Um, Australians, Australia's results have fallen behind in both relative terms relative to other countries and absolute terms, which means that a student today actually performs worse than a student 15, 20 years ago. So this is concerning. You know, as a country, we've invested a lot in our schooling system. Um, we pride ourselves on it. And yet there's, a, there's a, a serious downward trend. I think another serious concern that comes out of this report and one of the most interesting aspects of the report is that you've done a survey, Julie, of teachers and principals regarding teacher professional learning in Australia. Tell us about that survey. So our survey has looked at how uh, a lot of the coaching roles in schools are working. We know that a lot of the learning of teachers happens on the job. So that either happens from coaches who are brought into the school or some teachers who are at the top of the career ladder get given additional coaching responsibilities. Um, so our survey is really trying to look at what's happening on the ground in schools um, how are these roles going and how do teachers perceive them and are they finding them useful in improving their practice? So we've surveyed over 400 instructional leaders across the country, um, 300 teachers and about 70 principals. The findings are interesting. So teachers say overwhelmingly that while they value learning from instructional leaders in theory, in practice they very rarely report actually changing what they do in the classroom. And there could be many reasons for that. Um, sometimes, you know, teachers need time uh, to digest new information and also to change what they do. So it, it could be that. It could be that they don't necessarily respect the advice that's been given to them by some of these instructional leaders or coaches. 
And there are some signs that that might be happening because um, over half of the teachers in the survey said that they don't think that the best teachers are in these roles. They're considered to be roles for mates and tapped on the shoulders by the principals as opposed to people being rigorously selected. Um, and one of the other findings was that they said that uh, that some the advice is inconsistent over time from coaches and instructional leaders about how to improve their practice. And to some extent, it could be possible that, that that's arising from the, the way that some of these coaching programs are being funded in Australia, where often governments will invest in a short-term, uh, highly targeted program, but then that will then stop three or four years later and then there'll be a different program in a different subject for a different year level and there's little consistency, which means that you don't actually have ongoing positions in schools. In terms of what instructional leaders are finding in the survey, um, they also feel like the roles aren't necessarily working for them either. So instructional leaders in schools are typically lead teachers who ha who have a regular teaching load and then on top of that they're expected to look at how teaching is going and to improve it maybe you know a couple of hours a week and they feel very stretched in these roles you know it's a serious thing to try and look at how to improve teaching in schools um, often the way that the role is designed they're not necessarily set up for success so these roles are often very broad so rather the and often to improve teaching practice, you need to get very specific. So that will mean actually getting into the subject and the content matter, not just showing teachers what a general principle or a theory is, but actually saying, okay, so tomorrow you need to do it this way rather than that way. And that actually takes a lot of time, headspace, and also the, the authority and the mandate to actually then get into teachers' work. And if you think about how the, the type of culture that we have in Australia as well in schools, that type of... Um, relationship can be very difficult. Another finding that's coming back in the survey from instructional leaders um, is that when they first step into the role, over half say that they have no initial training. So, and often these roles can involve quite difficult conversations with colleagues and peers, and there's an art to that. Um, uh, and in managing those types of conversations well. Um, one of the other concerning findings that came back from, from the finding was from the survey is that there's also no one really checking instructional leader advice in schools. So, and that's from people who actually have deep expertise in that field. And that very much goes to the way that schools are set up. So the school principal today is expected to do everything. They are expected to be the leaders of finance and the school grounds and also teaching and supervising and oversighting some of these roles when actually they can't they can't be experts in every subject. Um, and what we're seeing is that uh, people who, great teachers who might be in these positions don't have any guidance about the type of advice they're giving and they themselves haven't had the opportunity to receive feedback from perhaps someone who's deeply across the research in the field who could help. So, Julie, over many months in preparing this report, you've surveyed 750 teachers all around the country, you've made school visits, you've been in... Uh, classrooms and in staff rooms talking to teachers and principals. Can I ask this, is there a mood of despondency perhaps in uh, the Australian teaching workforce? Look, it really depends who you talk to. There's a lot of variation. So there are definitely some pockets of great practice and people who are really upbeat about some of the coaching programs that happen in Australia. Um, and anecdotally, they have some great stories. 
But on the whole, across schools, it seems like there are people who are particularly great teachers who are in these roles for the right reasons, who are who are battling uphill. Instructional leaders would appreciate more guidance um, and support. There's a sense that expertise isn't necessarily valued as highly as it should be, that this is something that you can just do in the few spare hours in your afternoon, and that's just not the reality. So, Pete, can I bring you in here? We've got a problem. We've got a problem. Our students are falling behind their international peers, and as Julie says, our, our principals and our teachers are telling us that, that we are not using our best teachers to best advantage. You've got a plan to tackle these problems. Tell us about your proposal for a new expert teacher career path. We're talking about an expert teacher career path as something that would operate at a systemic level, that would become part of the way that education works, part of the way that schools work and staff rooms work in Australia. And the big difference here goes to that disconnect that Julie just talked about. There's great practice in some places, but as a whole, our education system leaders have talked the talk, but they haven't walked the walk. They haven't put the money, the time, the resources behind these roles to really make them help them fly. So the expert teacher career path is a proposal that we have flagged in a couple of previous reports. It's something that was recommended by David Gonski in his second report um, through Progress to Achievement. And it's something that could really transform day-to-day work. So how would that happen? We'd propose to build on some of the best of what's already there, but do it at much greater scale. There would be two new roles created. These are different jobs, and it's, it's really important. It's not just about the label that someone gets given. It's what's the, what's the day job? What do you wake up in the morning and think about? What do you go to bed at night and think about and say, I want to do that better tomorrow? The first of these jobs would work within schools, and we're calling them instructional specialists. And we've chosen that name because they would be specialists. They're not just generic great teachers. They're people who are really, really good teachers, but also understand their subject well and how to teach it. And they know how to teach other adults, really an an important element. And an instructional specialist is a dual role. They're at once a teacher with a regular classroom load that keeps them as a practitioner. They they remain a peer and a colleague of the other teachers. And they are a coach and a mentor who is bringing in their expertise and the evidence base into how to do things within each school. The second of the roles we would call master teachers. And there would be many fewer of these. They would work across schools because a even, a, even when people get better, they should still be always learning. So the instructional specialists could look to the master teachers who are working across maybe 15 to 30 schools each. And a master teacher would be a specialist in, it could be history or economics business or secondary school maths. Now, they need to be a good teacher themselves. They need to be... Um, someone who really deeply understands that subject, and they also need to be change agents. They need to be people who can bring others along the journey and actually say, 
It's one thing that I can help you understand how you might be doing things differently, but my job is to help you actually do things differently. And that's a tough personal change journey for anyone who's on the other side of that. So they've got to have real emotional intelligence and sensitivity. Between them, these two roles would create a new pathway. At the moment, if a teacher is doing well in their career and wants to stay in school education, the typical way to progress is to move away from classroom teaching, to move towards becoming the head of a faculty, then a deputy principal, and then a principal, maybe moving into the department. Those are all incredibly worthwhile and necessary jobs. But there also needs to be job, there need to be jobs for people who are really good at the craft and science of teaching and want to stay on that side. Other countries have done it. We've talked about that previously, Singapore, Shanghai, some other places. Uh, um, but this new career path would offer opportunities for advancement, opportunities for recognition, opportunities for greater pay for really top teachers. But they also offer the opportunity to have a greater and greater degree of impact on student learning. Once a teacher has really figured it out in their own classroom, then can they help other teachers take on some of that magic? Can they help other schools do that? And it's interesting as I'm reflecting on and talking through this, Paul, is that this sounds like quite a big departure from what's actually happening in Australian school education today. But it's exactly the same as we would expect in many, many other professions where the best professionals, those with the deepest expertise, have a really vital role for passing that on to the next generation and also learning what's happening on the ground, which is outstanding and new, and filtering that up the tree so it gets back up to policymakers and, and a system change level. Pete, give me some perspective on this. Talk to me about scale. How many teachers are there in Australia and how many instructional specialists and master teachers do you foresee? Let's start at the top. There's nearly 4 million school students in Australia. One in every six Australians is a child who's in school today. They go to about 9,500 schools and there are nearly 300,000 teachers who teach those students. That's the largest single workforce in Australia. Within that, what we're saying is that about the, the top eight or nine percent of those teachers should be on this expert teacher career path. The very pinnacle of that, the master teachers, would be about one percent, so about 2,900 teachers. And then eight percent of the workforce would be the instructional specialists, and that's about 24,000. Let's play with those numbers a bit. So with nearly 10,000 schools, 24,000 instructional specialists, on average, there would be about three per school. In a larger school, there would be a lot more so that there would be one for maths and English and physics and, and history and other things. In a smaller school, there may only be one or two, but they would get more support from master teachers. What we've really tried to do in this model is to look at what is the scale of every school in Australia? What type of support would transform the quality of the instruction? And then how many of these new roles do we actually need? Um, and the, when we've done that, we've thought 
over and over again, what's this person's day job going to be? So for example, for a master teacher in mathematics, you might be expected to support 15 to 20 schools. When you do that, you can go and visit every school twice a year, spend the whole day there, see what's happening. You would be supporting the instructional specialist in that school. You'd be talking to that person every single week. Every month, you'd be bringing together the instructional specialists from your schools for a whole day to talk about what are the common patterns, how to improve things. We've suggested much, much more intensive support than has historically been done because that's what's needed to build up both the depth of expertise but also the closeness of relationships because all of the literature, and Julie, I don't know if you might want to add something because this is one of your specialist areas, the the, the literature around professional learning, um, amongst other things, says you people learn better from peers that they know and trust. That's right. There is some research that, that says teachers are far more likely to adopt practices that they've uh, learnt from other teachers as opposed to other people walking in and telling them what to do. Hmm. But, Pete, there's an alarm ringing in my, at the back of my mind. You said with regard to the instructional specialists that they have a split role. They are in the classroom and they have this leadership and instructional role as well. Aren't they going to be overloaded? They certainly could be overloaded, and that's what's happening a lot of the time today unless we give them enough time release. And so depending on the size of the school, the larger the school, the more time release the instructional specialist would need. And we've settled on saying that they should spend some of their time in the classroom, at least half of it, so that they remain familiar, so that they remain a peer that their their colleagues want to learn from. But if you're in a bigger school, you would get half of your time free as an instructional specialist in order to support your other other colleagues. And we've talked to many teachers who've been in that circumstance and they say that with half of my time free, I can make an enormous difference. If I really personalise this for for the listeners, um, many might have heard of a mathematics teacher in New South Wales called Eddie Wu. Um, Eddie is a good friend of the uh, Grattan Education Program, that when he was at his school in Cherrybrook, he had something, it didn't have this label, but his job was roughly half of the time teaching a maths classroom, roughly half of the time supporting the other maths teachers. He's now doing that role across different schools. Effectively, he is doing a master teacher role in mathematics in New South Wales. What we're saying is we want to have not just one Eddie Wu that we hear about, we want to have, in fact, thousands of people who are on that journey who have really become fantastic at their craft and are using that to spread uh, their effective practice much more widely. So, Pete, how would these thousands of Eddie Wu's be selected? Where do we get them from? Let's first take what characteristics you need. So there are three parts of the skill set that are needed. One, to be a good general teacher. And the best way to identify that at the moment is through an approach that was introduced by AITSL, the Australian Institute of um, Teaching and School Leadership. They put together the professional standards for teachers in, in Australia 
And there are two rungs of that, the highly accomplished teachers and the lead teachers, which specify teachers need to be working at a certain level in order to get it. That, that ticks off part one. Anyone who's certified is a good teacher, and we would say certification should be a prerequisite for applying. The second part of the skill set is to really deeply know your subject, and that's something that um, Australia has not focused on as much. We've had a lot of talk about general good teaching, but knowing how to build a relationship with a student or how to give good feedback is valuable, but it's not the same as knowing how to teach fractions or how to help someone write an essay. They're different skills. So testing detailed subject knowledge, well, the best way to do that in time would be that those with that expertise warrant, yep, a person X actually is a really good maths teacher, really understands what's sometimes called the scope and sequence of mathematics, the curriculum, the best ways of teaching it, and how to bring it all together. The third thing that is needed is the ability to change other adults' minds. We talked about that before. So that's what you'd be looking for. A school, when it wanted to bring on one of these roles, would advertise. Teachers who were certified already would be eligible to apply. And then you'd have a selection panel that included a master teacher to take the best of them. And then the extra bit in our model, which is really important, is not just to say, great, you've jumped those three hurdles, off you go, hey, have fun. Um, it would be to then give a substantial amount of extra training, the ongoing support of a master teacher and the collaboration with the instructional leader's own peers. You know, this, as I've said before, it's designed as a system rather than just as a filter. Okay, but talk to me about salary, Peter. You're talking about... Uh, you keep using the phrase top teachers, best teachers, and clearly under this proposal, we'd be putting big responsibility on these people to improve the quality of the profession overall. So are they going to be recognised in their pay packet? Absolutely, they're going to be recognised in their pay packet, and that's needed. Let's take a, a brief step back, Paul. Teaching in Australia... When you start out, out straight out from university, is paid pretty well. It's paid about sixty-five to seventy thousand dollars per year for a brand new teacher. That's a pretty good salary for someone straight out of uni. It then grows slowly for about ten years, and then it flattens off. And very few teachers are on more than about one hundred and ten thousand dollars, which is a good salary, but it is way below what most university graduates would be earning by the time they're in their 40s and 50s, especially those who are doing well. And so we have this problem in Australia that our best teaching practitioners are paid about $50,000 less than what they might have done if they'd had another career. That's a, that's a really big disincentive to who comes into teaching. Um, and so the model of this actually specifically addresses that problem. It's much better pay for a small and elite cohort who have shown that they've got the goods, who are doing a job that warrants that extra pay. Um, and for an instructional specialist, $140,000 per year, that is a really good salary. That's a comparable to school leadership. Um, and 
it not only would recognise and attract people into that position, but it would also send a signal to a young person thinking about teaching, yeah, maybe I should, uh, I should have another look. The master teachers, there are very few of them, we suggest that they should be paid higher again at about $180,000. Um, and that is a very good salary but for people who have really deep expertise and the opportunity for enormous impact. Okay, so how are we going to pay for this grand plan if 9% roughly of the teaching workforce is on this um, expert teacher career path and presumably their jobs or part of their jobs are being backfilled by new teachers and those who are master teachers or instructional specialists are getting these new and handsome salaries, who pays and how do we pay? Yeah, and that's one of the key questions. So 8 or 9% of the workforce in time would have these roles, but not all of them are full-time. So the first part of it is that the instructional specialists, some may have half-time time release, some may have less, but on average they have about a third. Now, I won't ask you to do the numbers in your head, you'll have to trust me on this, but that means that... It increases the size of the workforce by about 4%. And so roughly, roughly, because not everyone in school education is a teacher, roughly, roughly, if it was fully operational today, it would increase the cost of school education by about 4%. That suddenly doesn't sound so dramatic. And we've particularly done the costing for government schools, which over the last decade, we've spoken on this podcast before, government schools have not had a lot of money coming in, but there is more money coming in now under the National School Reform Agreement. And that amount of money is more than enough to pay for the cost of this package. Let me be specific about that. And the easiest way to do it is by talking about how many dollars per student is going to be coming in and how many dollars per student would our model take. So... At the moment, an average student is funded to the tune of about $15,000 per year. That's what the status quo is. That's going to increase for government schools over the next decade or so by about $1,000 above the number of students and above inflation. So another $1,000 per student. The cost of our program by 2032, by the time it would be nearly mature, is $560 per student per year. So we're saying there is not more money coming in. A substantial chunk of that, but far from all of it, should be used for this proposal to transform the workforce. And we would also urge governments to uh, pick up the proposals from our last report to complement it with scholarships for people coming into teaching because we have the opportunity with this extra money coming in to transform the way the school education workforce is, is set up in a way that would be better for teachers and better for students and better for all of us. But it still wouldn't absorb all of the extra money that is already going to be flowing in for government schools. So Julie, Pete's painted a pretty exciting and pretty clear picture of a better way for teaching in Australia. Can I ask you, what's the payoff here? What will this mean for my kids who are going to school? What will it mean for their kids in a decade and two decades time? 
So for a start, I think it would really change how people value and perceive teachers. So I think by recognising great teachers, that in itself recognises the complexity of teaching. We know that a lot of young, bright people these days are actually turning their backs on teaching because it doesn't, it isn't a career where there is a lot of opportunity for promotion and extra responsibility. So that would be a start. Then it would make people, the lives of, of teachers who are already teaching, hopefully much easier. Um, these changes and the, this type of support in school is to, in schools is designed to really help teachers do the regular things that they do. For people who are outstanding in their practice in their subject field, it would give them the recognition um, and the platform to really drive change across schools. And that's something that I think most professionals, um, you know, at the end of the day, they strive to do. They're not just watching the clock and looking at their pay packet. They're like, what have I actually done today to drive change? Um, And I think the more that we get the whole system working and thinking in that way, um, the more that we've really um, professionalised teaching. And what does it mean for the kids? Presumably a more professional, better resourced, more strategically, professionally learning teaching workforce means better education for our kids. I think you've said it very nicely. That's right. I think at the end of the day, this this is about the kids and their experience in the classroom with the teacher. Pete, I want you to look ahead for me. You've outlined a grand and exciting proposal for a better teaching workforce in Australia, but you, in the report, suggest that it will take 12 years to reach a mature scheme. So let's look ahead those 12 years. Let's assume this scheme is implemented as proposed. In the year 2032, tell me what the school system in Australia looks like then. How is it different? How is it better than today? I'll start with the teacher. As a teacher, when I start out, every school that I go to would have a series of people who are really expert in their subject who have time to help me get up to speed. As I continue to improve, I can get more subtle about the questions I ask and there's always someone on tap who will either know the answer or will know where to look. As I continue to progress, I have more choices. I can go down that leadership track or if I want to stay focused on classroom teaching, I can strive not only to get certified as a highly accomplished or lead teacher, but also to take on a job where I can really have impact first within a school and then potentially across schools. Within that, me and my colleagues, we're doing more of the things that are actually working and we're spending less time reinventing the wheel and trying to figure things out from scratch, which happens too much today. We're more focused on the things that make more of a difference. For parents, they would notice that in more consistent language. Students would notice that in teachers who are just quicker at understanding, where are you at now? What do I need to do next? From a societal point of view in 2032, we would look back and say, we've really changed something over the last 12 years. We got a shock in 2019 when that extra round of international test results came out and was the worst ever. It wasn't the first time it had been bad, but this time we reacted. This time we changed. They would say that in 2020, 
We knew that we needed to change. We had the vision from David Gonski. We had the opportunity because of the extra money coming through. We had a plan that got debated, not just by the Grattan Institute, but by the teaching profession itself. And we turned the best of what could be done, what was already being done in some places. We turned that into, this is the norm for how we work in Australian schools. That's worth striving for. Thank you, Pete. And thank you, Julie, for your vision and for your insights and your expertise today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you'd like to read Pete and Julie's report on teacher quality or indeed any of Grattan's reports and articles on education and a whole lot more besides, go to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you found this podcast valuable, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>